This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we had a conversation with Alex Cuba, Grammy Award winning Cuban Canadian singer, nominated a bunch of times, winning Grammys a bunch of times too. He lives in a tiny BC town with his wife, plus, one of his costumes is now up in the Grammy Museum beside Lionel Richie's outfits. How cool is that? Alex Cuba on the shift. Steve Stebbing is here talking about what the hell should we watch this weekend. Snake Eyes gets a thumbs down. And he'll explain why. Plus, M. Night Sh- uh, Shyamalan and more on the shift. Chris Gilbert is back live from Tokyo to help us understand what the Olympics look like outside the bubble. What's really going on with protests, unrest, and he takes a tour around Japan and narrates it for us what he sees. It's pretty quiet. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Uh, Chris Gilbert uh, was a show producer here on The Shift. If you don't know Chris, Sir Christopher Gilbert is uh, how he is so affectionately called on the program. And Chris lived in Vancouver. He's from he's from New Zealand, but he's been worked as a, you know, as Canadian in his Canadian heart for a long time and then moved to Japan through the um, the pandemic with his partner. And now is in Tokyo, literally in Tokyo. How'd you say it? Tokyo. 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 I, I say I'm not very good at it either. Don't ask me. All right. Uh, Chris is there literally outside the Olympic bubble, giving us the inside scoop of what's going on with the citizens of Japan and Tokyo versus, you know, the stuff that you can get everywhere else about the Olympics and how cool it is. So opening ceremonies are coming, Chris. With Canada, they figure about 30 to 40 of the 350-ish athletes are going to be there for the opening ceremonies. So a very small-looking opening ceremonies for most everybody. But that's not the same feeling that's going on everywhere. So where do you want to go today? Because you've got lots of stuff. Oh, i got lots of stuff. i tell you who won't be there just quickly is Kentaro Kobayashi, the creative di- director of the, uh, the opening ceremony. Yes. You guys reporting about that over there? I saw the story now. The uh, he, he got booted for the, the anti-Jew uh, yeah. statements. Anti-Semitic, I suppose, would be the proper way to say that. Yeah, in 1998, um, and it's uh, come back to bite him in the butt 21 years later, um, Japan, Japan is a country which I feel like, uh, you know, it feels like most people in the world aren't looking in its direction anyway, so we can kind of get away with some stuff. But uh, this guy did not get away with this joke, which I, you know, I'm not going to be on the radio. If you really want to find out, you can find it out. But uh, yesterday, he, he was fired yesterday morning. Um, it follows the same week that uh, I think, oh, I can't remember his name, but the, the composer of the, one of the Olympic composers was fired for... Um, uh, tormenting uh, people with, uh, I guess you could say, special learning needs or disabilities in school. Um, and, of course, a few months ago, the head of the Olympic Committee here in Japan had to uh, resign as well uh, for saying that uh, women shouldn't be allowed to really speak in meetings. So, you know, just just an A++ team they put together to lead this thing, mm-hmm. but it has got us to this point. And uh, the, the ceremony is in three hours. And, uh, yeah, it's all go from here, Shane. Did you? Uh, does it surprise you that they waited this long? I mean, it's not like those statements were new. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. Honestly, it does surprise me. I mean, I mean, it, it's the day before the Olympic ceremony that he was. You know, it makes me wonder how long they were sitting on this information for. Yeah. And um, yeah, get the work done, then we'll get rid of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, well. Also, let's let's use the guy we want to use, and then we'll save face at the very last minute by getting rid of him. Once, yeah, as you said, his work is all done. Um, 
But uh, you know, it, it, I um, we'll, we'll play my my report that I put together for you guys in a bit because I, I took a big bike ride around um, Tokyo yesterday. Oh, something I only really realized that I shared with you this week, Shane, is that um, the the media here from all over the world they're still doing a soft fourteen day quarantine, so they can't really do anything apart from go to the media center, go to some pre-approved games, and then go back to their hotel room. Um, I, I'm in a very lucky position where I can go anywhere, see anything and do anything. And so I did that. And what I found is that outside of the Olympic bubble, there's really nothing happening in the city. Although, uh, this is happening right now. I'm, I'm in Shinjuku or I'm close to Shinjuku, uh, which is in the North, big part of the Northwest of the city, just below it is Yoki Park and near Yoki Park is Shibuya. In Shibuya right now, um, there is a bit of a protest kicking off. You've, you've got that, that protest audio, Brendan? It's kind of funky. Mm-hmm. It's got a good beat. You're gonna have a, yeah, if you're going to protest, have a party. Yeah, no, I kind of wish I was there just to like, no, not necessarily protest, but just have like a little dance, you know, get some catharsis out. But um, yeah, there are there are protest hobbyists in Tokyo that you know even before the Olympics were taking to the streets and as a general citizen, people don't really protest that much here. But apparently, this is quite a big one. You know, a couple of thousand people, a lot of uh, anti uh, Prime Minister Suga and Tokyo Governor Koike, a lot of anti them sentiment going around. Um, but most people, to be perfectly honest, in Tokyo, it's a four-day weekend. It's a long weekend. A lot of people just got got their heck out of Dodge, Shane. The city's empty. Hmm. It's a lot more energetic and passionate than the lady who did the pew-pew water gun at the torch. <laughs> uh, so this, uh, well, yeah, she was kind of cool, wasn't she? But so uh, she was just one person that had a water gun and tried to squirt the torch runner or at least put out the torch, I guess. Uh, yeah. They do keep backup flames around, <laughs> um, so that wouldn't have lasted long. But I, I appreciate the intent of what she was trying to do. Now, this, to draw contrast, sounds very organized. Yeah, it's organized. Um, I, I think, um, as I mentioned, like you do get the same people like every now and then who come out of the woodwork three three times a year and, and just bang some drums and be like, hey, we still don't like you, Koike-san mm-hmm. and Suka-san. You're still not great. Um but yeah, apparently this one was bigger. Um, I think it's very well established now in the media that these um, Olympics, as we talked about so many times, are incredibly unpopular. I've seen I've seen it kind of coming out in weird directions in um, American media this week, like the like uh, Japan versus the Olympics and like the Anger Games and Japan's saddest time. And I'm looking at these, being like, where are all where's all this coming from? Are these people here? You know, I mean, it's it's unpopular, but uh, it's, it's been quite sensationalized. It, on the ground, what is really happening is that there's a pandemic. Everyone's trying to survive the pandemic. And uh, this uh, meteor has just crash landed on top of them. And, uh, I mean, there's going to be a variety of emotions that come from that. But uh, on on the base level, you know, like everyone's just trying to... <laughs> get their vaccines and stay safe and and try and live somewhat of a happy life as much as possible and you know this isn't really helping the uh the bubble is interesting because sort of like you described earlier the they can't go anywhere you can go everywhere they they can't go anywhere they being basically reporters who are 
kind of quarantined to to their tasks, if you will. Um, are they are they really? Because I mean, as you describe with the American reports and whatever, the are they missing the boat? Like, are is it getting sensationalized both the right way, the wrong way, or um, or being missed? Is the real good story actually being missed in all this? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I will just put a plug in for uh, this before I answer your question, Shane. There is um, the New York Times bureau chief here in Japan is a a lady called uh, Motoko Rich, M-O-T-O-K-O Rich, and you can find her on Twitter. And uh, she's obviously, you know, she lives here, so she doesn't have to quarantine. She's free. And uh, I would say that she is by far probably the best source of news about the the Olympics at the moment in terms of a a local level. So I I highly encourage everyone to follow her on Twitter or check her out because um, I go to her a lot and her content is great. Um, I think I address a lot of this in in the story um, we're about to play, but I will say that... uh, I feel like Japan in general, in the eyes of, um, you know, like English speaking media, Western media, there's kind of an exoticism about it, or maybe like a lingering Orientalism about it, which is like, oh, Japan is a country that we don't understand. And, you know, Japan has, you know, they do things in strange ways, and we can never really get behind, you know, the Japanese mind and stuff, which is true to some extent. But in terms of like, uh, the people who live here, they're just, <laughs> one's just normal people. Tokyo is really just a normal city. And so I think that if you're a reporter, you've been sent to cover the Olympics, you're a sports reporter usually, right? These are like mm-hmm. not political and cultural reporters. And then they're doing a live cross somewhere. They're giving an update on their national team. They're saying what life is like in the village. And then they've got 30 or 40 seconds left to kill and uh, the anchor asks, um, so what, what, what are things like in Tokyo over there? And, uh, of course, the reporter doesn't have a clue uh, because they've been inside uh, a taxi or um, uh, the hotel or something, but they're obliged to answer the question to do their job. And that's when um, some things kind of get squeezed sideways a little bit in terms of the answers, and, and people struggle. Um, so I, I thought I would go out on my bicycle, um, I, by the way, am no expert on the Olympics. Uh, I like sports, but I, I know I, I'm not a history buff or an Olympics buff at all, but I do live here. So, um, I went out on my bicycle and, uh, I went all over the city yesterday to kind of like gauge the mood of the city. And, um, I feel like if you want to listen to it now, Shana, I feel like, I feel mm. like I did a pretty good job. Sounds great. This is uh, Sir Christopher Gilbert in Tokyo, uh, with his own report, literally touring around getting the voices of the people and the thoughts here on the shift all right here goes i'm about to leave my apartment um in western tokyo and brave uh the heat i've picked a hell of a day for it it's 33 degrees feels like 37 degrees Uh, and uh, i'm about to go take the pulse of the city and a lot of kilometers to cycle so let's get going the first stop is going to be the uh, the National Stadium. Let's see what's, if anything, is happening around there today. As I cycle towards Shinjuku, I listen to the staple sound of the Japanese summer, the cicadas. Cicadas are the sound that you associate with the depths of summer here. If you listen to them and just look at the blue sky, things almost feel normal. People should be relaxing enjoying summer festivals, going on holiday, and yet none of that is happening. 
Due to the pandemic, it was all cancelled last year too. People lost their holidays there. What makes this year different, though, is that something is happening. Something wasn't cancelled. But the 2020 Tokyo Olympics is not really including the people who live here. In fact, they're all skipping town. I'm just on my way to the Olympic Stadium, and on the way, just swung by Shinjuku Station, probably the busiest train station in all of Tokyo, uh, and probably the busiest city in all of Tokyo. There's nobody here. Like on a normal pre-pandemic day, this station, millions and millions of people go through this gate that I'm at, the south gate of the station. There are like a few thousand people around me at the most. I can only imagine how busy that would have been under normal circumstances on day two of the Olympics, the day before the opening ceremony. It is a public holiday today, but Tokyo is meant to be under a state of emergency. People are meant to be staying in the city. It's hot in the city. There's not many people here. At a level crossing, I watch a long-distance train go past, full of passengers. It's a long weekend here, and for the first time since the pandemic started, travel bookings are higher than cancellations. In Tokyo, there are 2,000 new cases a day at the moment. 10% of all PCR tests are now coming back positive. That's doubled in the last three weeks. COVID is spreading here, but it's hot. People want to take to the mountains and beaches. They want to get the hell away from the Olympics. And they're increasingly wary, cynical, and tired of a distracted government that seems to be managing COVID with international eyes in mind, more so at least than the health of its people. The media of the world are in Tokyo right now, reporting on what it's like inside the stadiums, the Olympic Village, the high-tech media center, taking us inside the benign strangeness of these Olympic Games. But it's curious to me. Because the Tokyo I live in feels more and more like a place where everyone has to fend for themselves. So I wonder where this other bubble exists. Well, right now I'm outside the Tokyo Olympic Stadium. And in terms of atmosphere, how's this? I would say literally crickets, but uh, they're cicadas. There's a 10-foot fence around the entire stadium. I don't know if this is a normal Olympic security or something else. And I also don't know who is being kept away from who here. A couple of cops here. And across the road in the corner, uh, people are mostly filming me. I can see three people with their cameras pointing towards me. Hello. I go around to the museum side of the stadium, to a small plaza with a green lawn, where the Olympic rings are. I have a feeling this is what morbid curiosity is. There are more people here, about 200 of them lined up into a long, quiet queue, waiting to take selfies in front of the rings, but the mood is subdued, intense. People were quietly talking, looking at the rings, looking at the stadium, trying to find some way to participate in this event, as much as they can do anyway. Um, uh, this is a weird weird moment in my life. <laughs> I feel like I'm being gaslighted. The, the dissonance between 
a lifetime of conditioning to believe what I believe and know what I know about the Olympics does not match this very restrained scene. At the entrance to the Olympic Village, there's some um, people pushing carts. Looks very interesting. They're allowed inside. It's my first time at the village, and I was surprised that you really can't go anywhere near it. The same 10-foot wall blocks it off, truly. Inside, of course, are the athletes. You can see the country's flags hanging from their balconies. Buses come and go in and out of the village non-stop. One drives past with a team inside, wearing green. From their windows, the athletes all smile and wave to the fans. A mother and two small girls wave back. The only people here. And that is as much excitement... Oh, hello, who's this? A group of very tall women. One of the teams has come out. I can't tell... Oh, one of the, oh dear lord, they're from... Oh my god, it's the Brazilian soccer team. Let's get out of here. I make a quick dash to a safer distance as the team walks down the street, away from the village. They were just heading to a bus, but I decided to follow them a little. I'm currently stalking a Brazilian Olympic team. You don't get reporting like this anywhere else. There's no other journalist just stalking Olympic teams, i tell you that much. Where's all the media around these guys? I'm the only one here. Lazy. The media are actually all doing a soft 14-day quarantine. They have to keep incredibly strict schedules and can't go anywhere apart from training and games, their hotels and the media center. I, however, can cycle anywhere I want. I'm not in that bubble. I tell you what, though. The fence around this place really gives you the sensation that <laughs> there are two worlds in this city right now. There is definitely a world within a world here, and Japanese people are completely locked out of it. As somebody who lives here, I can't help but feel that, like, everybody who paid for these games has gone through a year of uh, anticipation and expectations and frustrations who are really carrying these games on their own shoulders here. Completely locked out of the games. Can't see them can't really visit them, can't really enjoy them. What are people here meant to do? Opening ceremonies for the Olympics uh, coming up, depending on when you hear this, uh, could be running, could have run, and uh, are coming up this morning, depending on uh, which time zone you're in and when you're listening to the shift broadcast. So uh, I'm sure it'll be rerun on TV on a Friday night. Of course, it will be. Uh, Sir Christopher Gilbert. Chris Gilbert is uh, one of the team members here on the shift and has been for uh, about a year now, in fact, but lives in Japan. Now, there's a text comes in from Trucker Dan. You might remember Trucker Dan there, Chris. He says, um, yeah, of course. I really like the way Christopher Gilbert commentaries his adventures. In my mind, he has the potential to be the next David Attenborough. Well, you're already Sir Christopher Gilbert. So that seems to be good. Yeah, I've already got the knighthood. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, really, I'm, I'm, I've, I've already surpassed David Edinburgh. How long did it take him? You know, I'm yeah. 34, <laughs> and uh, I'm there already. So, um, yeah, eat that, Sir David. I love him, though. <laughs> and it's a huge compliment, and thank you very much, Trucker Dan. I, it's, it's, it's warmed the cockles of my heart. Ah, there we go. Okay, so in, literally in Japan, in Tokyo, you're cruising around, you're stalking, which, uh, by the way, do we need to talk about that? You're not supposed to stalk people, Chris. Um <laughs> well, I mean, like, not okay. Context: nothing is happening in my day. Like, I I have cycled. I am sweating. I I took um, two changes of t-shirts with me. I took some body wipe. 
masks. I took a change of masks, uh, like a whole bunch of masks, and I took some salted candies for hydration. It was 37 degrees yesterday. I'm cycling around Tokyo, which is a concrete plateau, and it's and I haven't really eaten anything. And um, and at one point, I went into a convenience store and I got like a bottle of um, kind of like lemon and salt, like uh, like a hydration drink. And I, they put it in the freezer to make it extra cold. But, of course, it's, like, slushy and frozen. So I was on a traffic island at one point, just straddling my bicycle, squeezing the life out of this bottle to suck every last bit of, like, hydration fluid out of it. And was, I was just going at it so hard that it looked like, you know, like there was a wildfire coming and the stop global warming button was at the bottom of the drink, you know. <laughs> and so I was really tired that by the time... Um, I was talking. I mean, uh, I found. I mean, uh, the Brazilian team up here, <laughs> <laughs> and I it was. I was a hot day, and and I, so nothing had happened all day. I was just walking around talking to myself, um, and I, I tried to interview a few locals. But first of all, I don't really believe in vox pops because um, it's a city of thirteen million people. What does it matter that a couple of you know two or three randoms think? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was talking to myself all day. And then by the end of it, I was at the gates and I'm like, well, I can't get in the Olympic Village. I can't get in the stadium. And then a whole, I think it was a tennis team. They, they, they um, come out of the gates and you're like, oh, an action scene. And I'm going to follow these people that just happened to be ladies. And I just cycled down the street to see where they went. And they stopped right outside the 7-Eleven. And I was like, oh, this is going to be controversial because they're going to break quarantine to go get themselves a piece of hot chicken or something. And then nothing really happened. The bus came and picked them up, picked them up and took them to their training. But it was very exciting <laughs> for me in the moment. Now, you, uh, you're you going to end up on TV. So <laughs> here's the thing. Chris yeah. sends me a text message yesterday. You're like, dear God, don't put me on TV. Um, and then yeah. you go out and you do this. And what happens? You end up on TV. Yeah. Yeah. So I right after I left the Olympic Village, um, uh, a camera crew was there and they were trying to uh, interview foreign media uh, because, of course, there's a huge cynicism here um, about the double standard that's applied where like, the government and the local government in Tokyo are telling people, you know, you can't go anywhere, you can't vacation, you have to stay at home. And then uh, Thomas Bach and the IOC can have parties and also foreign media and some foreign delegations have been seen leaving the Olympic Village to go drink in the streets and stuff. Um, doing pub crawl. It's very tabloidy, and I, I don't really buy into the um, foreigners behaving badly thing, which I think is popular in every country. Um, but there's a huge scrutiny of Olympic uh, foreign media here by the Japanese media. Um, Nippon TV comes up to me, and they're like, hey, we want to talk to foreign correspondents. We see you have a microphone. Um, everyone is saying, no, can we talk to you? Very quickly, very quickly. And I was like, sure. And then they interviewed me for, I think, what must have been 25 minutes. Whoa. And, uh, yeah. And I, and I, I, I would say um, I thought New Zealand had, a, a, had some kind of weird uh, self-esteem complex about how the world sees it. But Japan has the same thing. It's like, what's everyone in your country saying about Japan? What are they saying about this story? What are they saying about this story? What are you telling people about, you know, Japan? You know, and uh, what specifically are you saying in your stories about Japan? And um, there just was so much interest um, in how Japan is being perceived at the moment by foreign media and by, uh, you know, people in the English speaking world. And I was like, honestly, 
I think most people just see this as uh, two two things, like COVID-19 is happening and the Olympics are happening. And that's about it. People just care about sports ball and they care about wanting to know what COVID is doing. Um, and uh, even that second uh, story, people probably don't care about so much anymore. People probably just want to watch the Olympics. But yeah, my, my beautiful face on Sunday night will be on Nippon TV. By the way, oh, nice. um, I was the, the guy had a handheld camcorder. Not like a, not one of those big, you know, like, uh, TV crew cameras. He was literally holding like a, a handy cam and was filming mm. me with it. And I was, um, I thought that was very cute. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna be on TV. How about that? Maybe it's uh, maybe you're gonna be on his OnlyFans. Maybe that's what just happened. Well, if, if people want to see me, I mean, like the the only you know, like guess you know, scandalous bit about this is that um, scandalous is that a word? I'm going with it. Um, the only scandalous thing about this is um, you know, that I was very sweaty. And, you know, I was, I was uh, wearing my mask. I had a hat on. There was nothing, no sex play going on. I was just a very sweaty man. So if I, if I make someone's OnlyFans, you know, more popular, I'm, I'm happy to contribute to that. So when you look at everything that's been, on, been going on, Chris, since you're there, I mean, you've got this inside scoop on all of these things. Um, you know, I, I guess what are you, what's your takeaway? I mean, you've got lots of different perspectives here, yeah. lots of different angles. And, you know, I know that you've shared so for, with me some of the different notes and things that you write down that, you know, that you've got in front of you. So what's something that we here in Canada, I mean, I think that the, the Japanese people are, are uh, reading too much into the are we sitting there judging everybody? <laughs> like they seem to be worried about. But what about, yeah. um, what, what about uh, the perspective? What do we need to know? What's something that we will never know? Uh, unless you know you share it with us from from inside the city versus inside the Olympic bubble, I think it's a great question. I think the thing that like, I think the thing that the two the two things and that I would share and like one of them I've been begging on about the entire time, which is that um, the people who built these Olympics literally built the stadiums, put in the overtime, you know, did all the documents, did all the paperwork, made this whole thing happen, and paid for everything is the people of Japan. And, and, I, and I, I, I know I keep going back to this one, but at the end, uh, the, the former prime minister, John Key, I mean, he's only used, to, used to say at the end of the day. So every time I say it now, I roll my eyes. But at the <laughs> end of the day, um, uh, at the end of the day, it really should be um, something for them to enjoy. And they can't. So th that is the first thing I would take away. The second thing and is that I feel like this whole story is really quite truly quite simple and I, I feel like you know we we have a feeling as both uh spectators and myself as media that we wanted this to be special we want it to be a big event right we want it to be the olympics it's the olympics and then like oh but it's not just any olympics it's the covid19 olympics okay where can we take this story and so it starts spinning in different directions from there but out of all the reporting, and I think for the audience listening, from all the reporting you consume, it's very quite simple, is that the Olympics are not happening. An international sporting event is happening in the, uh, a city which is currently battling as hard as it can to fight COVID-19. And what that means for everybody is different. I know a lot of people in New Zealand and Australia might be like, they're not trying hard at all. They're not even locked down or anything. You don't know the context of Tokyo or Japan, so you can't judge what is happening here in terms mm -hmm. of fighting it. People here are fighting it, just like everyone in the world is every day. You know, there's 40,000 cases in the UK right now. 
I'm not going to tell anyone in the UK that they're not fighting COVID-19. I have no idea what's going on over there. So, but what is happening is a mass sporting event that is happening at a, at a, at a country which is uh, trying to, to fight off, um, much like Canada and um, uh, the US were when the vaccines were picking up there, the last, you know, that last, um, that last smoke in the room of the, the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the Olympics are not happening because these aren't really the Olympics. The Olympics is so much more than a sporting event. The Olympics is, is awesome. You know, like I've heard so, read so many articles about um, former athletes who are like, you know, if you can't feel the people in the room, it's just not the same. And I, the, the audience I'm talking about. And of course that's true. You know, it's the audience, it's the engagement of the public, the host city is an integral part of it. You know, people are meant to be here. There's nobody in the city. You know, people are meant to be exploring the country. So the, the, I think um, when, you, when you're listening to reporters, and um, I, I mentioned to you, I'm not going to go into it, Shane, but I mentioned to you like something that I heard on the CBC um, podcast the other day about a, a, a CBC journalist that is, that is inside the media bubble speculating on what Japan is like outside the bubble. If you listen to reporters speculating on what Japan is like outside the bubble, just ask yourself, do they really know what they're talking about or are they oh, just, yeah. you know, are, are they speculating? Just filling you can't, you can't do that. That's not cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's very simple. So that, that's what I would want people to take away from it. I like the, uh, the takeaway that, uh, and I think it's very clear. If we had talked about this a few weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have got it, but I think I get it today, especially when you describe it the way you're describing it, mm. is that this is a giant sporting event, but it's not the Olympics. Not the Olympics. The spirit of it is, and, I mean, the Olympics, I mean, the Olympics is a, it's a, it's a, it's a belief system is what it is. I mean, yeah. the Olympics yeah. is a belief system and, um, it yeah. is a giant sporting event. And, and that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. Look, and it, I also like when you say that these are the people who paid for it. And not only are they not able to enjoy it, but they're actually defying the government and just getting the hell out of town because they don't even want to be yeah. around. Yeah, no, I mean, like, um, I think I mentioned in my story that uh, um, cancellations are lower than fresh bookings for this four-day long weekend at the moment. Um, COVID is spreading here, and people, at summer is here, um, especially the oldies who are vaccinated, over, over 65s, um, currently account for, I think, maybe 30 out of the 2,000 daily COVID cases. The vaccine is working on the over 65, so they're getting out of town. Everyone's leaving Tokyo to sit in the sun and drink beer. The interesting thing is that everyone is like, well, I can either stay here where it's hot, where the Olympics are and where COVID is spreading and do um, COVID-19 prevention measures. Or I could go to where it's cooler, to where there's fresh water, to where there's bear, to where there's summer and do the same thing where there is no COVID. And the interesting thing is that um, COVID test, uh, pre-travel test centers have been full. So people here have actually been trained to take the precautions before they even travel domestically. Um, so it's, it's very interesting um, that, that people seem to um, have taken the experience of the last year and a half being saying, you know what, I believe my government is doing COVID-19 prevention measures, but they're doing it for the Olympics. I will do what is best for me. I will take my own COVID-19 prevention measures and do it for myself because nobody else is. The numbers, though, in Japan... Now, there's lots of people, lots of vaccines, but because there are so many people statistically, like the balance of the per capita 
you know, vaccines per head, if you will, is still very, very low. Is that a thing that even yeah. exists in the news there comparing to, I mean, you've shared with us the reasons why that the, 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 the Japanese medical system didn't want to trust the Western science and wanted to do their own testing, blah, blah, blah. But d- does the government take that bullet or is, does everyone just let it go? Um, no, they're taking the bullet. I would say, um, I, I don't, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I don't have, own a TV, so I have to catch up on one more TV. TV is huge here. Everyone has a TV. Everyone watches TV news. I don't have a TV. I really need to get on top of that. Um, but on the TV news, there is a lot of reporting about what the va- why the vaccine rollout has been kind of bumpy and slow. Um, there was a bottleneck at the clinics. The auxiliary supply of uh, Moderna opened up, and that went to workplaces and uh, universities. That has currently dried up, and there's more Moderna coming in. There is still Pfizer, but now who is the Pfizer? It's just, you know, it's a complicated vaccine rollout, just like it is in every country. Um, But I would say the government is taking um, a hit for, I would say, everything right about now. There there is not much that people... um, are not looking at how this whole thing has been handled. Um, and I think the bottom line is, is, is um, for a lot of them, that uh, you, uh, like, like for example, um, you know, they can't get into the Olympic Village. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's keeping the Japanese public safe. Maybe the Japanese government did a good thing. But they did a good thing for the Olympics to happen. They did a good thing not for the Japanese public to be safe. Um, and I, th- I feel like that is um, m- maybe not 100% fact, but is definitely the overarching um, sentiment amongst, especially the Tokyo public at the moment. There have been some Olympics where things have happened, and that's all we remember them for, like Atlanta with the bomb in the Olympic Village, like in the oh, park, yeah. stuff like yeah. that, right? And, um, you know, is this, this is destined to be the, the COVID Olympics that, you know, was terrible, I guess. Oh, you know, I mean, but that triggers the really cynical part of my brain where it's like maybe this is all done on purpose to like they have to hold the Olympics this year to have the legacy of the COVID Olympics and keep the, you know, the yeah. the spice, the spice in the relationship alive for the IOC. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I did hear uh, that uh, Dick Pound and the IOC felt like you know, the sentiment is going to linger. Like usually the, once the Olympics start, people kind of get over it, uh, any resentment they have towards the Olympics and start to enjoy it. Um, I will personally admit that um, I really enjoyed uh, watching uh, New Zealand footballer Chris Wood uh, score an amazing goal against Korea um, last night and watch the, uh, the Ollie Whites from, from New Zealand, oi, 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 beat the South Koreans. That was pretty great. And I'm going to enjoy a lot of the Olympics, I think. Um, I'm going to enjoy the, like, the gymnastics. I love the gymnastics. The beam is cool. I don't find synchronized swimming boring. I think the sports are all cool. Um, but the, there is um, kind of a bitter taste in a lot of people's mouths. And uh, just going back to those those two bottom lines, Shane, which is that uh, this is a big sporting event, and the people who made it happen are coming second right now. So Christopher Gilbert is in Japan, in Tokyo, and he is one of our shift heads and family members here. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate the extra insight uh, really to what's truly going on with the people that are there. I think that's the cool part. Thanks, brother. No, no, it's it's a pleasure to share it with you guys and to uh, everyone in Canada. Um, If anyone does want to get in touch with me for any reason, um, 
I'm sure that uh, you guys, someone in the audience, if you want to contact me or any questions mm-hmm. or anything, um, yeah, con- well, you can just Shane. email me. Yeah. yeah, Shane at it's the shift.ca, and then I'll refer you directly to Chris if you have any questions or you want to uh, you want to talk to him, find out what it's like. He's happy to pass it on. It's the shift.ca yeah, through absolutely. the form on the website, or just email me directly because then we can uh, we can just filter it for you. Thanks, awesome. everyone. This is the Shift Podcast. Spend some time with you. Just the two of us We can make it if we try Just the two of us Hey yeah, the two of us Just the two of us Now that song is of course familiar to you That version might not be Alex Cuba And uh, Just the Two of Us I'm Shane Hewitt, it's The Shift, thanks for being here Now Alex is an interesting cat I've just been recently introduced to Alex because Ryan was digging around on the internet and found, at Ryan Loves Shoes, found a story about his costume going into the Grammy Hall of Fame in LA, and Alex is Canadian. Uh, So we were like, well, if he's Canadian, let's uh, let's talk to him. And Alex Kuba is right here with us today. Alex, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. We do have a little bit of delay on the uh, on the internet connection here, so I'll do my best to not cut you off in this conversation, but such is life on the internet today. Alex, you as a Canadian and your music and Grammys, it's not something that most Canadians would think that happens, but it's happening. It has happened so much so. They're putting your clothes in the museum. Yeah, I will. Was, um, I was surprised by that too. Uh, the outfit that they are, well, that they have now in exhibition down at the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles is the outfit that I wore to my performance at the Latin Grammys last year. You know, Latin Grammys 2020 in November. I traveled all the way down to Miami to perform at the Latin mm-hmm. Grammys. I was invited. I was also nominated. And... Um, and uh, yeah, a few months after that, they got a hold of us and wondering if I was, um, you know, okay to send them my outfit for them, you know, for the Grammy Museum to put on display. And I, we thought it was a very cool thing. So I didn't mind giving up my brand new leather converse. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's beautiful. Um, now, this is a big deal. I mean, the Latin Grammys, I mean, going and and being a part of it, being nominated, winning, and all those pieces. I mean, that's amazing in itself. But really, when you think about this, Alex, your you know, your work, your outfit, your brand new leather converse that you wanted to wear to shows, they're going to be on display. And it's surrounded by some pretty amazing artists. And when I throw these out there for the audience to hear, you know, your stuff is on display with Lionel Richie and, you know, Megan The Stallion and Taylor Swift. And these are people that are in the Hall of Fame with some of their uh, their displays. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah, thank you. Um, it feels amazing. I feel that, um, you know, somehow it's one more one more a sign of recognition to, you know, to what I do, uh, to, to my music, to what, what has been my life in music in Canada, you mm-hmm. know? So it feels really cool. It feels really good. How strange is it to uh, be a Latin Grammy Award winner and be uh, Canadian and living in Smithers. That's a that's a formula for success nobody thought of. <laughs> oh, you got that right, I think, because not even me um, saw it coming, you know, for, for sure. And let me tell you something that I'm I'm also proud of. I am the first Canadian 
to ever win a Latin Grammy. Um, the second one, the second one is Nelly Furtado, and she won on the album that I actually collaborated with her. And she won 20 minutes later than me that night. Oh, really? Uh, 10 years, 11 years ago in Vegas. Yeah. I now, um, I have, I have won four Latin Grammys and, um, you know, I, I don't talk a lot about it, but uh, people are starting to ask me a lot about it. Just like you just did, you know, um, because it's weird. People can't put, you know, those two together. The fact that I live so far away from everything, you know, and and these things are happening to to me, to my career. I, I guess it's, it's enough for people to wonder, you know, how can a human being make that happen? You know, um, the best that I, can, that I can say is focus and dedication and, and you know, aim at the world even though I'm in a little tiny town in Northern BC, my focus, my aim is the world. I have to be, I have to, I make music thinking of the world, not, not only thinking of Canada even, you know? So um, mm -hmm. I guess that, that mentality helps to achieve some goals, you know? Well, there's a path here that I can't help, but you know, it hits my heart a little bit, Alex, in that you were born in Cuba you know, you meet people, right? You meet some people, they come into your, li your life, you end up getting married, you move to Canada. And now, where would you be, Alex, if you hadn't met Sarah, if all these things hadn't come in? I mean, the gratitude that you carry in your heart for all of these things coming together, m m it must be rust run deep. Yeah, very deep, very deep. I also have made sure in my life that every decision, every move we ever make, every decision we ever make, uh, is, is it comes from the heart. You know, um, we, we we follow the heart. When I say we, it's my wife and I. We we have no other choice. Uh, it, it was my decision to come to live in Canada because I felt musically a connection to the rest of the world, not only Cuba. I wanted to expand on and to capitalize on that connection that I was feeling, maybe it was a, a desire to to reach further, you know, uh, beyond my culture, beyond my my own music, you know. And so we came, but Sarah wanted to live in Cuba. She actually loves Cuba very much. Mm -hmm. And she lived down in Cuba with me for for almost two years at the beginning of our relationship. Uh, I don't, you know, take it off the table that maybe one day we go back to live, live in Cuba, you know, um, mm -hmm. life it's about movement, I guess, you know, you, you got to keep it moving, right? And, um, but yeah, I, I feel very grateful, very grateful for everything I have, or we have manifested. Sarah That's is my true. right hand. She studied anthropology in the, in the university, Simon Fraser University. But uh, we met and, and very soon came our first child. And, and um, so she never really, really practiced uh, anthropology. In fact, I mean, instead, what she did was to join, join my 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 team, join my my operation, my music, a, a desire to take over the world with, you know, and uh, and uh, yeah, she's been she's been my my business manager from the beginning. Well, it's a beautiful story, and it's really cool to see you know those Grammy awards over your shoulder on our call, and be able to see them sitting there, and then. I, what it what I think it really takes down is to to everyone who gets to hear this story, Alex, is that 
you know, you put in the work, you do it. Anything is really possible. If you, I mean, born in Cuba and then to win Latin Grammys from, you know, small town British Columbia just goes to show that anyone can do it if you put in the work. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's a story of dedication. That's a, a how I want people to see it. You know, of course, hopefully people see it that way and not because of my Afro. Oh, he has a nice Afro. So maybe he makes, he, he wins Grammys because he has a nice Afro. Well, you do have a nice, you do have fantastic hair. As a guy who has straight <laughs> hair, I'm very jealous of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Anything's possible. Man. Anything's possible. You have to, Follow your heart and thin and as cliche as that could sound in in twenty twenty one, I still believe in, in that. You know, you have to follow follow your heart. There is no other way out. You know, to be honest with you, up to this date, people still ask me, when did you make the decision to become a musician? And I said, my my answer is always the same, uh, which is I don't remember ever making that, that making that decision. I just really? roll with it. It was what, what my heart was happy doing, you know? And I said, okay, this is it. But the decision to become a professional musician had never really made it. That just Life just took me on a journey. And, and I'm happy to be here talking to you today about it, you know? So, Well, thank you very much for doing just that. Alex Cuba has uh, been nominated for Grammys, nominated and won Latin Grammys four times. And so much so that they're taking his, they're stealing his clothes and his favorite shoes and putting it in the museum for a year. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that I couldn't believe when I saw. To be quite honest, I did, I couldn't believe when I saw the tweet that the Grammy Museum sent when they the, the exhibition began uh, about five days ago or three days ago. And when I saw my name, yeah, right beside you know Lionel Richie and Taylor Swift and, and people like that, I was like, wow. I guess this is a, I guess this is pretty cool, you know. <laughs> oh my God, this is pretty cool, and um, and so. Does that mean we can look forward to a Latin cover of a Lionel Richie song? <laughs> but who knows? Now that my outfit is down at the at the museum, at the Grammy Museum, maybe maybe it's my uh, it's a good excuse to do a Lionel Richie since I'm right beside him. Um, cover, who knows? Like uh, hello. It's a Yeah, you have to. Yeah, right. Oh, that's beautiful. I didn't mean to interrupt. The um, but if you could do like a hello into an all night long kind of thing, you know that. Mm-hmm. See, that would be see that would be super fantastic, right? And hey, and you can't go wrong with Bill Withers. I mean, just cover all of them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's my favorite. My favorite single songwriter. Lovely day. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, lovely day. Yeah, I was just listening to that. I was just listening to that on the car as we travel back to Smithers from Vancouver two days ago. So yeah, it was. It's, it is definitely. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. You know, songs like that. Oh my God. And it's. Time she goes away. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing music. Oh, it's, it's music that's that's it's beautiful. I could listen to it all day. Uh Alex, you need to come back. 
Uh, when you see Sarah, do me a favor and just give her a big hug and say that's from everyone on the shift um, for being, you know, part of what created all of this. Because if she hadn't have gone to Cuba and made that decision, uh, we wouldn't get the chance to be here so many years ago, having an impact that ripple effect on life. So, so far down the road, um, what brought her there um, gives us this today. And for that, I'm grateful. Thank you very much. I will. For sure. It's the shift podcast. We need to see what the hell should we watch this weekend? Steve stepping is here. Steve last summer when uh, I was in your fine town of Penticton, um, there's yes. that fire on the Eastern edge of Skaha down there. Yeah. How are you guys? Cause yes. there's another fire down by Oliver. How are you guys doing right now? Uh, better than better, better than that. Um, it's further away. Uh, the, the one, um, the, um, the Thomas Lake one, that one is, um, apparently, t- uh, winding down a bit as far as the last thing that I heard about it. Uh, it's the Soyuz, uh, Oliver one. That's a little aggressive right now. Um, but as far as I've heard, the wind has kind of held steady and everything. So um, barring that anything kicks up with that, it's looking okay right now. It's just mm-hmm. it's really close to a lot of properties mm-hmm. uh, that I see out there. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, another scary time in the Okanagan. Well, is that, is that, do you just reserve yourself living in the Okanagan? That, that that's, I mean, this is what happens in summertime and you just need to be careful and smart? I I think so. I think there, there needs to be more of an adjustment of how people, uh, how life is lived out here. Um, because, I mean, these seasons are going to start to last longer and start earlier, I think. Um, as, a, as a guy that, you know, has lived most of his life in the lower mainland and stuff, it's, it's a big shock for me. Last year was a was a, a, a huge eye-opener to kind of living in, like, kind of a forest fire area. Um, so, yeah, for for the big city guy like me, it was really different. <laughs> yeah. Well, and climate change could bring a bunch of rain one year to Penticton. But at this point, not anytime soon. It's just getting hotter and drier, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, that's where Steve's stepping in. He's in Penticton. He's here for What the Hell Should We Watch this weekend. So let's get right into it so we don't miss any of these great recommendations. Let's start with this one. This one gets me. Because we were talking off the air about Fast and Furious. This is like Fast yes. and Furious a la G.I. Joe. It's Snake Eyes. What is it exactly you do? For 600 years. Our ninja have brought peace to the world. But things have changed. I need warriors like you to become the future of the clan. It's yours, if you want it. Let's go. Now, I actually thought that was a trailer for Fast and Furious until the very end <laughs> when the ninjas came on. Um, I was like, mm-hmm. they're putting ninjas in Fast and Furious? They, <laughs> they will. Crazy. Yeah. Sure, they so will. So tell us, tell us about Snake Eyes and where it goes. Uh, basically, yeah, this is the origin story of uh, the ninja carry Snake, uh, character Snake Eyes, who anyone who had the toys or uh, watched the cartoon knows that Snake Eyes is a silent ninja. So uh, not for this movie being his origin story. We have uh, Crazy Rich Asian star uh, Henry Golding playing Snake Eyes in a, a beginning story because, of course, Hasbro bought 
E1 not too long ago. So they want to make a movie again. They want to reboot this whole G.I. Joe cinematic universe. And the action scenes do not work in this movie, which is the thing that should work. It feels like everybody's being filmed from like their shoulders area. And it, I just, it was complete nonsense of knowing what was happening in the fight. You have your shaky cam stuff. Um, I, I feel like they let the biggest part uh, of what could have made this movie work fail, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give this one a nay this week. A nay. Ooh. Yes. But the costumes look good. That matters, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's glitzy. It's it's shiny and glossy. Like, it's got all that uh, Hollywood glitz and glam. And they're really trying to build a Cobra and versus Joe's. Uh, battle world and i just i just don't think this movie's strong enough to kick that back up again i like the idea of it i just don't see it mm. working just yet um i think they're no. going the wrong direction i think they could go i mean it's mystical at best anyway by the storyline but i think they could get a little bit more realistic i think of video games with it i think of some of those first yeah. person military games that they yeah. could have this balance of this old school military type show with yeah. this spiritual ninja battle, you know, foe and have yeah. those two worlds collide. I like that, but I don't like this whole, let's do it as fast and furious sounding yeah. big boom. Yeah. Create a Joe or create a Cobra. Yeah. And just go. Yeah. Open just world go. sandbox stuff. Go with Joe. There you go. Yeah. Here on the show. <laughs> uh, next on the list is old. What's happening to us? My daughter just turned six two weeks ago. Mom? Whatever's happening to us is happening very fast. You have wrinkles. There's something wrong with this beach. What's happening? Mom! 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 I'm scared! That's how most people feel in the morning when they look in the mirror as they get older. Yeah. I'm scared. Right? I have wrinkles. <laughs> it's daily. Tell us about old. It's, it's a- yeah, this is M. Night Shyamalan uh, coming to to put his uh, his mystery and twists on another film. Uh, hopefully, recovering from the flop that was uh, Glass, the ending of his Unbreakable trilogy, and. Um, you know, the premise is really cool because it's like basically a tourist trap and these uh, these people go, these tourists go to this beach that they've been told about by the resort manager. And uh, it's where time rap- goes rapidly past as, uh, you know, the kids get noticeably older quicker and the adults to try to figure everything out, uh, which everything would have came together so well if Shyamalan knew how to write dialogue it's absolutely atrocious in this movie just the uh, just it's the worst i just knocked my drink over in the background yeah (laughs) oh no that bad so angry about that movie that i just knocked that over but uh yeah it was i i just i feel like there's everything there but just the dialogue every couple minutes my eyes got a workout from rolling so hard because it was really just that bad like he needs somebody to come in and be like people don't talk like this yeah <laughs> well it's almost it's funny because it I, he he's so good at creating suspense mm-hmm. but then almost mm-hmm. tries too hard with the yeah right it's he, he's done better like i i feel like 
I mean, there there are blips in his career which don't work. I mean, when you think about Swing Away Merrill, it just kind of doesn't work, uh, you know, 15 years later after signs. But uh, there there is some sparks of brilliance in Shyamalan's career, but there is just so much uh, that dogs him down and so much that he doesn't learn from. Um, I want to like him so much because there are movies in his filmography that I really love. But uh, Old just kind of just just kind of left me cold the twist is pretty cool though i will say that i'm not going to get anywhere deep into it but i did like the twist but yeah this dialogue is just it's like cement shoes it's just terrible stevestebbing.ca is where you can see the blog of all the things that steve gets up to the musical fruit next on the list beans if they hate us we suffer oh my god get on the floor now get on the floor All right. You have to respect yes. the bean. Yes. Canadian film. Uh, actually, they uh, screened this one at the Vancouver International Film Festival, and there was just so much playing at the festival that I didn't make it to this one. And I really regretted not when I not seeing it when I finally got to see it a couple days ago. Uh, and this comes from uh, Tracy Deer uh, in her debut film. And basically, it takes place... Uh, right in the middle of a 78-day standoff between uh, two Mohawk communities and the government in 1990 in Quebec, uh, but at the same time as uh, the main character, nicknamed Beans, who is uh, basically trying to figure out who she is as a burgeoning preteen to teen. Uh, and it's an interesting story uh, about finding your place in this world, uh, about extreme race relations, and just... Uh, the horrible abuses that are, are put on the indigenous community. Um, and uh, I just found this movie just draw, draw, jaw dropping in so many ways, especially when uh, these, these Mohawk people have to kind of form a caravan to cross into Quebec to do shopping and, 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 you know, gathering food and everything and just the extreme hate and violence that they face at every turn. It's, it's, it's just an incredible film. Next on the list, what the hell should we watch this weekend is Stuntman. You got an email. Somebody is building a rocket and they need a pilot. This rocket was on my lunchbox as a kid. I'm ending my career. I will go out finishing what my hero started. Life's funny like that. All right. Tell us a little bit about it. Stuntman. Yeah, this is a Disney original. Uh, actually, National Geographic had made it in 2018, and uh, Disney held on to it for uh, a good release on their Plus platform. And basically, it follows a stuntman uh, named Eddie Braun, who's uh, been doing incredible stunts for, for decades. Uh, but the one stunt that he hasn't done is the Snake River Canyon rocket jump, which is uh, one that his hero, Evil Knievel, attempted and almost died doing. So it's kind of to better his idol. He wants to uh, kind of put that notch in his belt. And it's a fascinating story about a guy that just... Uh, you know, kind of epitomizes the whole stuntman industry, a very unsung and unawarded um, industry, and just shows how incredibly important that they are 
to pop culture, to film, to television, to to everything there. So uh, yeah, this is a really cool doc. And cool, cool relationships too between the actors and the repeat. Like you see with the Rock, yeah. and his his stunt double, and um, mm-hmm. oh, what's her name? It's escaping me now. Scarlett Johansson and and her stunt yes. doubles. Like you yeah. see them, right? There's pictures on mm-hmm. multiple movies hanging out. You know, they do quite look alike. You know, they don't look the same, but they look alike. No. It's it's neat. It's really cool stuff. All right, uh, what the hell should we watch this weekend? With Steve Stebbing and Blu-ray and DVD, one of Steve's favorites is to dig into the bins. This is uh, Jacob's wife. I want to make my own decisions from now on. You ever see something you couldn't explain, Sheriff? (laughs) You don't know how to fight for me because you've never done it. Give me the strength to save her soul. We need to finish this. How you gonna write this one up, baby? Domestic dispute. Nonviolent. scary movies (laughs) and this one's cool because it's got like some campiness to it it's got some comedy some tongue-in-cheek stuff to it um but i mean it's a it's an age-old horror because it's a vampire story essentially but they do try to put their twists on it because it uh, essentially follows uh, a minister's wife played by a horror legend uh, barbara crampton from like reanimator among many many other other films uh and basically uh she's kind of in a crisis of uh just being the doting minister's wife and in a moment of weakness uh with an old flame uh she gets put uh kind of in the path of a ancient vampire that's played by the nuns bonnie aarons in just such a creepy makeup filled uh performance and uh essentially gets bitten and starts to go through a change uh one that's kind of supernatural and evil obviously being the vampire one but also gives her a sense of uh purpose and almost power uh to be her own person so it's kind of like this empowering um um bigger than life uh character movie at its heart and uh i mean it's it's going to be a, a, a kind of one of those cult films but i think uh horror fans will really latch on to this one and people just looking for something a little different will enjoy this film as well thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curiouscast.ca For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.